The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. At the anniversary of the no-hitter, Johan came to me and he said, Stop it. I was five. You were, t- you were not going to take me out of that game. And that made me feel better. So I pretty much now said, okay, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it was for him. Uh, and I'm not I'm not going to change that the way I feel now. The names are etched in Mets lore. Gil Hodges, Yogi Berra, Davey Johnson, Bobby Valentine. These are the managers who led the Mets to the World Series. Now... Let's add Terry Collins to that list, because while he might not be usually mentioned in the same sentence as those four wildly popular managers, he belongs there, because eight years ago, geez, has it already been eight years? He skippered the Mets to their last National League pennant. And despite the loss of the Royals that October, he's starting to feel that bond with Mets fans that happens over time. You know, maybe looking back, we'll start to thicken that attachment as the years go on, as we look back and remember wistfully that magical run in the postseason. But Terry has dealt with questions about how he handled Johan Santana's no-hitter and Matt Harvey coming out for the ninth inning in that Game 5 of the World Series. He's ready to talk about it all and the advice that he got from Joe Torre on how to handle New York. Plus, he's got thoughts on this summer's lost Mets season. It's Terry Collins' New York Accent. Terry, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. This year has been so difficult for the Mets because they've had a huge payroll, and obviously they still have been stuck below 500. There comes a point in time where you have to say, okay, it's just not gonna happen this year. Take us back through your years as a bench coach, as a manager with the Astros, manager with the Angels, manager with the Mets. Was there a year where coming toward the trade deadline, it did feel like you guys just couldn't get any traction, and then there was a pop and a run to October? Were you part of something that Mets fans can say, oh, okay, it's happened before, Terry was part of it? Well, yeah, we can go back to 2016. I mean, I think in August, we were actually two games under 500 in August, and we got hot in August, um, and we we made the playoffs due to some, you know, a big streak we put together, some big games against the Phillies that we came back and won, uh, and we end up getting in. We got beat by the by the Giants, but you know the point is we got in because you know we kept it together and and we got some guys hot at the right time. Last season, the Mets went 101 games and don't get out of the wild card round. They matched up against a really good Padres team as well. So the good news is there's many more slots to get into the postseason. The bad news is 101 wins doesn't guarantee anything. Do you prefer the modern structure where the door is wider open, or do you prefer the old days where if you had 101 wins, you're going to the NLCS more than likely? Well, you know, that's a tough one because I can go tell you a number of years ago, the San Francisco Giants, I think they won 107 games and didn't get the playoffs. So, you know, I I really like the fact that the extra wild card games allow the fans in, in many towns to still be excited about a chance to be in the postseason. And like I said, you look at the Phillies last year, you know, they got to the World Series, and, and several teams have gotten to, the, uh, gotten to the World Series as wild card teams, and some of them have won. So, you know, in all my years in the minor leagues, you know, we used to play the halves where you played a 70-game first half, and then all of a sudden after 70 games, you started from scratch, and it allowed teams in, those, in a lot of those towns who had terrible first halves to get excited about their team and yet still have a chance to, to you know, be in the postseason. So, 
I kind of like it. I, I think it's fun. It keeps the players excited. You know, there's nothing worse than in the month of September going to the ballpark knowing you have no chance to get it. You know, to, the, the games don't really mean anything to you except maybe you can eliminate somebody else. So I think it's always always fun to know when you're going to the ballpark that those games mean something. And certainly if the Mets can get hot, I think this September, August and September, they will mean something. Take us into a manager's mind in a season like this because fans of media have been bewildered that Buck Showalter seemingly been so optimistic despite all of the losing, and people are wondering, when is he going to get more mad? Is he delusional? Is he out of touch? But you tell us, strategically, what do you think Buck is doing by being very optimistic despite a, a season that's obviously very disappointing? Well, first of all, make no mistake, I'm sure Buck is as shocked and as disappointed as anybody. But you can't let that out. You have to be who you are. You know, I was a little bit more vocal. I was a little bit more, uh, you know, passionate about some things. Not that Buck's not. But, you know, I kind of wore my emotions on my sleeve a little bit more than Buck does. Buck's in touch with everything. Make no mistake about it. He has a great feel for what's going on. I consider him one of the best managers in the game. Um, and, and certainly, and I really believe it did. He knows that, hey, look, a run at any time, a good run, you know, they're going to be right back in it to where uh, they've got a shot to get into postseason. So is the idea there not to apply more pressure than there already is by being negative, by being vocal about the struggles, and instead just trying to be placid, stay the course, waiting for the run to happen because you do have talent inside the, the clubhouse? There's no question. That's the, that's the attitude you've got to come have when you go to that ballpark every day. You know, when you walk through those doors, those players know they – Make no mistake, they have a great feel for what's happening. And when they see the manager change or they see the manager panic, they panic. And so Buck's one of those kind of guys, he, he keeps that even keel and they know what to expect every day. He's one of the most prepared guys I've ever been around. So, And the players know that. And, and I think that helps. And I think that helps them get ready, knowing that he's not shook up by anything. And he, he can only control one thing, and that's, hey, the players in that clubhouse. And so he can't worry about who he doesn't have. He can't worry about trade. The only thing he can do is worry about those 26 guys that are in there right now. It's hard for me when I hear people just crush Buck Showalter because you look at the performance of guys that had great years last year or have a history and a resume of really great production, and they're just not doing it this year, whether it's Pete Alonzo, Jeff McDeal, the, a lot of the starting pitchers, et cetera. So I'm wondering, when you're a manager and you're just looking at players that are not performing, how do you handle stars, great players, very good players that are just not produ producing? How how can you connect to them and try to just stay supportive? Well, you you know, there's that open line of communication that you've got to have throughout the season. You know, there's a lot of this game can humble you at any time, and, and a lot of the stars and believe me, they hate to be embarrassed. Star players do not want to be embarrassed about anything. So. The idea is to let them know, hey, it happened before to other guys, other big-name players, and, and to stay the course, stay the preparation. You know, these guys, they've spent their entire careers with routines. Stay with the routine that works. You know, the minute you try to change your stance or change your hands, that's when you fall into strumps. You know, stay with what's worked in the past because eventually it's going to come back. But, you know, there are times that, you know, once in a while you got to tip your hat to the other team. You know, they're big league players, too, on the other side of the field, and they're their, their jobs to beat you, and once in a while you run into a team that's playing well or, or no matter what their record is, and they're going to beat you. So 
what you have to do is just take, work. Don't worry about what happened yesterday. We've got to worry about tonight. And we could, we, again, we don't know what's going to happen tonight that's going to affect us tomorrow. So tonight's the most important day of the season. Can it be frustrating as a manager to have good players and they're just not performing well and you're the one that gets blamed? Comes with the job. That comes with the territory. It always has and it always will. And you know what? Again, I all I knew is with all I wanted and went at the end of the night to know that my players gave what they had on the field and I was fine, win or lose, because you know what? Again, if if everybody executes and things go right, hey, you could still get beat by who knows what a bloop single in the ninth inning. Um, but so you know what? All I cared is for them is make sure they were prepared and they, and they gave it their best effort. When you took over the job with the Mets in 2011, it was pretty obvious. It was a teardown moment of the franchise. They had spent a lot of money through the 2000s, and then they realized. You know, that the talent pool was drained. It didn't look like the, the money was going to be there for spending. They wanted to do a total rebuild. So when you take over a job like that later in your career, do you have to be assured that there's going to be patience? Because it can be risky taking over a job where it's going to be a two, three, four, five-year plan. Well, when I got the job in New York, I was so excited to be back on the field at the major league level. You know, when I left the Angels, when I resigned in Anaheim, I didn't know if I'd ever manage again. I actually went to Japan and managed for two years in Japan. And when I got my opportunity to come back to New York, I said, you know what? I'm going to enjoy it no matter how long I'm here. I'm going to enjoy the job. They're hard to get. Um, there's only 30 of them in the world. And so enjoyed a little bit more. And so I, I, I approached it a completely different than I had in the past. You know, and I was told, hey, look, you know, when you're going to be very good, by the time, you know, you rebuild this team, you're going to get fired. I said, well, if it happens, it happens. Well, it didn't happen. I stayed there long enough to take a team to the World Series and, and certainly enjoyed all of my time in New York. I go back, and, and I can't tell you what a tremendous experience that was for you know me and every, everybody that knows me and my family. It was, it was a great, a lot of fun, and I'm really glad that you know, I got my opportunity to do it, and, and I lived you know, on the biggest stage in, in baseball. This show is entitled New York Accent, and we talk to people that have played, coached, managed, starred in New York, sometimes grew up here, about what makes it different. Did you reach out to anybody that had managed or coached in New York to ask about the differences about doing it here? Yeah, I, I probably I reached out to a good friend who probably did it better than anybody, and that was Joe Torrey. When I got the job in New York, I called Joe and, and said, okay, you know, of course, he was a New Yorker also, but, and I just said, tell me about, you know, what it's like, what it's like being here, and he gave me tremendous advice about, you know, how to handle it, how to go about it, uh, had, was lucky to be around maybe the, probably the best PR, uh, Miramita relations uh, person in, in all of sports, and that's Jay Horowitz, who helped me deal with the media and, and the sports writers and what to expect on a daily basis from those guys and talk about their personality, so, I, I, when I got this job, uh, I did all I could to make sure I reached out to all the resources that were available to me, and, and it all helped. What was Tory's advice? What did he say that really stuck with you of how to manage it? He said, make, make, understand one thing. You know more than they do. So, <laughs> yeah. He said, no matter, no matter what you read, what you hear, what people are saying, you know more than they do. So he said, just don't ever forget that and just be yourself and, you know, and run the game like you think it's supposed to be run. 
So I guess that speaks to the volume of of noise that's in New York, whether it's media, whether it's fan, it's it's all over the place that if you start listening to all the criticism, it's different than other places. It, it, it can start maybe hit you a little bit and you have to keep reminding yourself, no, I, I can't doubt myself. I guess that's the message. Right. I mean, again, you, you know, I can't tell you how many nights, you know, we'd you'd make a decision. And during, before that decision is made, you're thinking about, could I, I can do this or I can do this. And then you pick the one you think is going to be successful. And if it's not successful, you got to just write it and wear it. That's part of it. You know, everybody's allowed to have an opinion. And after the fact, there's a lot of real smart people after something happened that didn't work to say, well, I would have done the other thing. Well, of course. You know, I, I said it many times. Where were you when the decision was being made? You know, we we had all the documentation, all the numbers that, that said, hey, this, this is going to be the right decision. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I think everybody's allowed to have an opinion. That's what I think it's great about baseball. And one of the things I enjoyed about New York, they've got a, people people follow the game. They're, they know the game. They they do have opinions. And, and you know, after the 2015 when, when the Matt Harvey situation, I've had 2000 people tell me. Glad you left him in. I got 2,000 people said you should have taken him out. So, you know, but the, the point is it, it's a passionate, passionate uh, fan base, and that's what makes it so exciting. So let's go back to Game 5, 2015 World Series. I was in the building that day, and 2-0 lead, ninth inning, Harvey's throwing darts, and I agreed with you. You ride him because the last thing you want is the bullpen to give up a hard-earned win, and Harvey was a guy that seemed to thrive on that moment. Obviously, it doesn't work out. Mets fans, we relive that over and over and over again. As a as a manager, it means even more. Do you relive that over and over again? Well, I you know, it's hard hard not to because I have so many passionate Mets fans that I still see today who still talk about it. So yeah, you know, I do relive it. But you know what? I, I thought it was the decision that was the right decision at the time. Uh, Matt deserved to go back out there. He was pitching brilliantly, um, wasn't tired. Uh, the place was electric. And so, hey, look, I thought it was the right move, you know, and then, and it didn't work out. Uh, but, uh, you know, I look back now and, and I don't say, geez, I should have did this. And look, I made that move. I thought it was the right move and it turned out not to be, but uh, I wouldn't change it now. One of the anecdotes around that is that you had originally thought you were going to bring in the closer, and so maybe Harvey had exhaled there, and then you changed your mind that he had convinced you that he wanted to go back out there. Is that how it transpired? Yeah, pretty. It's kind of that's how it did. But there were some things that led up to it. You know, during the season that year, you know, we had all those young pitchers, and we kind of had innings limits on on a few of them, and so Matt had was getting close to the his innings limits when we. We tried to figure out how we could, how can we get these guys through the season. And he uh, made a statement that he wasn't going to throw more than X amount of innings. <clears throat> so we had to put that into the mix. And then one night I pitched him against the Yankees at City Field, and he threw a great game, five innings. I think he only gave up two hits. And I took him out because he was, again, we were worried about the innings total. So the next day he walked to my office and he said to me, give me the ball. He said, I'm all done. I'm all done worrying about this other stuff. I want to pitch and I want to pitch here. And you know what? He earned that. So on game five, that was me saying, you know what? You've earned this. You, you know, you did what you're supposed to do as a professional. You took the baseball. You're the, this year, this is your moment. Now go do it. And, 
And so I don't, I don't regret that. Because it's also part of the things you have to do to get your players to believe in themselves and, and, and to believe in you as a manager, that you'll trust them. And I, and I did that with Matt. So if you went back and did it again, would the change just be not suggesting you're to go to the closer in the ninth and instead just saying, Matt, you're ready? Okay, yes, you're out there. Well, yeah, because I, 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 one, of, one of the things I loved, I loved when players have passion themselves. And when Matt walked up to me and he said, I'm fine, this is my game, I want to finish. You know what? That spoke a lot. That spoke volumes to me. And I said, okay, go get him. And so I sent him back out. I can't blame you on that. And I know you've spoken publicly about the Johan no-hitter. And that was a lot of pitches, but it was the Mets' first ever no-hitter. It's his signature moment of his career. Is that also something that you relive and rethink? Yes. Um, that one was tough for me for a long time. Um, it, it, and it, it never changed, you know, because we could look back after that no-hitter and, you know, Johan didn't pitch much more after that. So, and I knew in that game when we were that, you know, we, we were talking about a guy who was coming, coming off an injury. He was hugely a huge part of the club, how much he meant to the organization. Um, and I, you know, when all of a sudden those pitches started mounting up, I knew it. But you know what? He is such a professional. He was so, he's such a leader in the clubhouse. He deserved that opportunity. So as I sat there on that bench, um, you know, I, I either I want him to get fast out or somebody to get a hit. You know, that's where it was because, but I couldn't take him out of that game. He deserved that moment because of his career and what he had done. So I, I let it ride. And yeah, years later, I, I mean, some time later, it was tough because he didn't pitch much after that. And, you know, I, how much did that affect our organization, that decision I made? But two things happened along the way. One, from a man who said to me that he had taken his father to a game, to the to that game, and this, his father was a huge, huge Mets fan, and a year later his father passed away, and he told his son, he said, his biggest moment in his life was to get to see Johan Santana pitch the no-hitter. So that made me feel better. And then at the anniversary of the no-hitter, Johan came to me and he said, stop it, I was fine. You were, t- you were not going to take me out of that game. And that made me feel better. So I've pretty much now said, okay, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it was for him. Uh, and I'm not I'm not going to change that the way I feel now. Wow. That's pretty special. That That's enough. When you hear stories like that, that it was the that person's the greatest moment of his life, it really must make you feel validated in that you had a career that changed people's lives for the better. When you're in sports and you do something great, it really does leave an indelible mark in people's lives. That must feel really good. Well, and again, that just tells you what the fan base in, in New York is like, whether you're a Yankee fan or a Mets fan. You know, I live I live in Florida, and I live in the Port St. Lucie where we train, and I play a lot of golf, and I play a lot. And when someone will introduce me to a guy, and he goes, oh, my gosh. He said, I'm a Yankee fan, but he said, I'm really glad to meet you. And that's the way it is. They 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 have a passion for their their team, and they love it. And yeah, so when you can have a guy say, hey, look, you made a difference in my father's life and thank you for leaving him in the game. Yeah, that that meant a lot. The managers that have taken the Mets to the World Series are all icons. Gil Hodges, Yogi Berra, Davey Johnson, Bobby Valentine, beloved figures in franchise history. 
and Terry Collins. I mean, this is a pretty select group. Do you feel the love? It might be hard to put yourself in categories of all-time greats, but do you feel the love of being in that select group? Yeah, I'm very fortunate. You know, I go back to New York a lot. Matter of fact, I'll be there next week for a few days doing some SNY things. And and I walk down the street and I have people stop me every day in New York and talk about the 2015 season or, you know, or the the argument that got on the Internet with me arguing with an umpire, you know, and they and it, it feels nice to think people, you know, think that much of you to actually stop and, and thank you for, you know, the 2015 season or, hey, look, boy, I love what, you know, I loved your passion with AR, the umpire. Because it's amazing, I mean, in a city that big, how I can still walk out and people still stop me today, you know, seven years after I managed this that team. Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. So in other words, when you fly into JFK or LaGuardia and you're walking through the terminal, people yell, my ass is in the jackpot, Terry. <laughs> well, the, the, the biggest one is, you got to give us a shot. You got to give us a shot. <laughs> Terry Collins led the Mets from 2011 through 2017, end of the 2015 World Series, which he was named Sporting News Manager of the Year, led them back to the postseason 2016 as well. And you get to see him at SNY, as he mentioned, here in the New York area. Terry, pleasure to catch up, man. Thank you so much. We'll look for you on TV coming up. All right. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it very much. If you just went to baseball reference, you would look at Terry Collins' win-loss record and go, eh, 30 games under 500. But when you really look inside his seasons, it was pretty damn impressive. Mickey Callaway, for instance, actually has an above 500 record, 163 and 161. And yet, I think we all know how much better of a manager Terry Collins was than Mickey Callaway. You see, Terry Collins took over a situation where the Mets were really in a tear-down mode, and Sandy Alderson said, we're breaking this thing up. We're stripping it down to the studs, probably largely because the ownership had gone through the Ponzi scheme and had lost all that money in the in the Madoff disaster, but also that after spending a lot of money in the early 2000s, they had to kind of reset and reboot and build back the farm system, et cetera. And so Collins oversaw a lot of bad Mets teams, and they were never that bad. I mean, you know, they would win 70, 75, 77 games. They weren't great, but they were never a disaster. And then 2015 happened. They won 90 games, ran away with the National League East, and then ripped through the playoffs and swept the Cubs of the NLCS. And it looked like, you know, the Mets were going to be dancing to a World Series championship. And, of course, that didn't happen. And so I think because they didn't close that season – Sometimes Collins is not associated with winning, and maybe that team isn't associated with ultimately winning because it was kind of a an anomaly, a flash in the pan. They were not that great before that, and then after that they were not that great, and they still haven't been great. I mean, last year was the closest thing in 2022 when they won 101 games but lost in the wild card round to the Padres. And so Collins doesn't attract the same notoriety in Mets fans' minds as the guys like Bobby Valentine. Charismatic, certainly a big personality. People remember him so fondly. Davey Johnson, again, a big personality. Winners in 86, the last World Series championship. A manager that oversaw truly the greatest years of the Mets in the mid to late 80s. And then going back to Gil Hodges and Yogi Berra, who are Cooperstown caliber people and players and, 
you know, remembered in that way nostalgically. And Collins doesn't oftentimes get lumped into that mix, but he's deserving of it. He he helped lead the Mets to a rare World Series appearance in in 2016, you know, they, they were pretty good again. 87 wins and back to the playoffs and the one-game wildcard loss against the best big-game pitcher of his era, Madison Bumgarner. I always felt felt like Terry Collins didn't catch enough respect because he was kind of caught in an in-between land where the Mets were never that great and only had one big payoff a year. And because it kind of faded again, you know, it was kind of like, oh, they got to make a change. And so make a change to who is it going to be? It's going to be Mickey Calloway this time around. Okay, is he the answer? No. Is it going to be Luis Rojas? No. Is it going to be Carlos Beltran? No. And then ultimately became Buck Showalter, who may or may not be the answer. But uh, I think as time wears on, Collins will be seen more fondly. And he kind of talked about it there. I also think that it's kind of crazy that two of the most significant talked about pitching decisions, managerial decisions in franchise history, both happened under his watch. And that was the Johan no-hitter. And that was Matt Harvey coming out for the ninth in game five of the World Series. And I don't think Collins was wrong on either one of them. I know that Johan, we all know that Johan's career was never the same after that. But had he taken him out after 119 pitches and Johan would have pitched two more seasons but didn't have a no-hitter, you know, because the bullpen blew it, was that going to be a better decision? Ultimately, Johan has the no-hitter, and you can't ever take that away from him, the, the, the one and only in Mets franchise history. And then, I mean, for Matt Harvey, yeah, probably the mistake there, as Terry had mentioned, was allowing Harvey to talk his way back in versus just going, this is the call, this is what we're doing. And so that maybe Harvey had relaxed, exhaled when he had heard, had heard they're going to the closer and instead that had to kind of amp himself back up. Maybe that was the case, but who in that building, I know I was there, didn't think that Harvey was supposed to come back out to close the door and make the series 3-2 and force a game six, in which case you know, the Mets had a chance to throw out some big guns in game six and game seven. I thought Terry made the right decision there. It blew up in his face, but... Anyway, I appreciate his candor and his his honesty, and uh, he's become a very good analyst and broadcaster for S and Y and Company. So it was cool to have him here on New York accent, and uh, I thought that was that was pretty enlightening. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast uh, by simply hitting your subscribe button. Uh, on wherever it is that you get your podcast as you're listening to this. We also have all of these on YouTube as well. And so you can check out the WFAN YouTube channel for all of the New York Accent podcasts. Check out our conversations in video form. And as always, you can leave commentary uh, under any of those videos or on Twitter at DA on CBS is where you can find me or on Instagram. You can follow me and DM me there. My DMs are open at Damon Amendo on Instagram. Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman on this project. You can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things. But until next week, this is New York Accent, an original Odyssey podcast. <laughs>